You guys can have a seat. In Mark's gospel, where Jesus turns his eyes toward his disciples, as he teaches them what life in this kingdom that he's bringing into the world is all about and how they can live in step with that kingdom. A kingdom that entails them taking up their cross and self-sacrifice daily. It's in that frame of mind that Jesus turns, the, turns his eye of discipleship toward the implications of what that mean for marriage and how man and woman live together. And the reason that this comes up is in the context of somebody asking him a question specifically about divorce. So I want to say a couple things right off the bat. Uh, one is that we are slightly out of sequence. Uh, we would have come to this section next week, but since next Sunday is a family Sunday and a celebration of Tara's ministry here at All Souls, that didn't quite seem to fit together with that. Second thing is that... Uh, I recognize that there are few experiences in life that are more painful, more disruptive than divorce, and that even talking about it, particularly within the moral atmosphere of a church where there's all kinds of emotional freight already baked in, it, it's hard, and I, I get it. So if you're at a low point in your marriage, well, you need to know you're not alone if that's the case. Fallout from the last couple years of disruption is real, it's, it's hard, and if you have been through a divorce, if this is a tender spot for you, or if, if you are a child of divorce, then you, you know that there is a deep pain there, and I just want you to know that we love you, and our love is only a fraction of God's love for you. So as I read the passage, I want to invite you into a posture of prayer to explore it from that position of God's unfailing love to you. If you have your Bibles, turn in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he said. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce to his wife and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. It's an often uh, cited statistic that around half of all marriages end in divorce. And that was true in the 1980s, but in 2002, it's closer to 38% of first marriages. 
That number goes up to 60% for second marriages and 73% for third marriages. There is a whole story in that data alone. But behind all of those statistics is a story of pain and grief and heartbreak. My own family genogram bears the marks of that pain. Of the 12 marriages on one side of my family, eight have experienced divorce. I am the product of parents who divorced and remarried. My dad was uh, dating a musician in the Central Valley of California, and when that marriage fell apart, he met my mom, who was a librarian at the local high school. He became the band teacher. No joke, for a while, her email address was Marion the Librarian, like from the Music Man. (laughs) So I know what it's like. I know the pain and the heartbreak. I have cousins that I I don't really know all that well. I have uncles that went unmourned. I have a nephew that I'm probably never going to really have any sort of relationship with. I love my family. I say all that without any judgment. I'm just telling you my family's story. And it's stories like that that mean it's, it's no surprise that there are no shortage of articles wondering whether the pain of divorce is worth the risk of marriage. Mark Regnerus, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Texas and one of the leading researchers on that intersection between faith and marriage, not too long ago he wrote an article wondering whether the church can actually save what is left of marriage. Conducting hundreds of interviews across the globe, his team of researchers found that, in their words, skepticism about marriage is spreading well beyond the West. It was detectable from Mexico City to Moscow, from Beirut to Lagos. As I studied the data and put the pieces together, it became obvious that among the globe's young adult Christians, something is afoot with marriage. In an era of new options, more choices, greater temptations, higher expectations, consistent anxiety, and and endemic uncertainty, nothing about the process of marrying can be taken for granted. Although I risk sounding alarmist, I can't stress this point enough. The institution of marriage is under severe strain. One of his his interviews went a little bit deeper in with a 25-year-old medical student in Spain who was engaged to another medical student. And Regnerus, as the interviewer, thought, well, if anyone has confidence or reason to be confident in their marriage working out, it's these two. When he was asked whether he was confident about it, though, Ander, the medical student, hesitated. And although he had a strong faith, although he was part of a robust Christian community, he acknowledged that the surrounding cultural voices had produced an almost pathological thought pattern in him of self-protection and skepticism. And so the interviewer pressed in and said, well, what is it exactly that you're afraid of? Not to be free, he said, tied to someone, compromised. Things you don't know that you don't know. I mean, maybe we're okay now, but not later. And so he leaned in a little further. Well, how might that happen? Uh, Differences arise in a couple. The other person is different than you thought they were. So Regner said, well, you've been dating for six years. Is that long enough to actually know someone? He replied, I don't feel like I know her all that well. Now, part of the reason that Uh, divorces are on the decline is that marriages are also on the decline in the U.S. Fewer people are getting married 
and they are doing it later of those who do decide to tie the knot. And there seems to be something about that seven-year mark, that, that seven-year itch. It's actually a real thing. There's some real data behind that. And I don't know if that's whether it's because you spend the first seven years trying to shape your partner into your own ego ideal, or, or whether that's because seven years is actually about the limit of time your brain can actually suspend reality enough to live in the illusion that the, the, you can actually stem the tide of change that's coming, or whether that's because seven years is how long it takes for that fiery passion to cool, or whether it's something else altogether. But the truth is that marriage problems are not a uniquely postmodern issue. It's, it's not something that just arose in our cultural moment. A little background. Mark 10 puts us front and center into this raging debate in the first century over how to interpret a cryptic passage from Deuteronomy 24. Here's the passage. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again. Did you track all that? A little bit, it takes a little bit of, you know, following along to get the sense of what's going on here. And it definitely cuts against the grain of our late modern egalitarian sensibilities. But, but actually, this was like way ahead of its time. Ancient Near East was notorious for, as much of the world was at that time, of having an easy divorce culture. A man was essentially free to walk out on his wife for any reason whatsoever at any time without leaving any property, any money, or any prospects for work. The one place you could go if you were a woman where the law was designed to offer you some protection from being treated as property and to keep you either from harm in your body or in your reputation was Israel. Over time, Jewish women had marriage contracts that provided them economic support in case of divorce. And by the time that Jesus walks into this debate, it's centered on how to interpret this one line in Deuteronomy 24. If he finds something indecent about her, what exactly does that mean, something indecent? The Hebrew is ervat devar. Does that clear it up for anybody? You got that? If Shane knows it, okay, fair enough. It's vague, is the point. And, and there were basically two schools of thought about, uh, about how to interpret that. And they were named by the two famous philosophers or famous uh, rabbis of the time, the rabbis Shammai and Hillel. Now, the house of Shammai was the more conservative one. They interpreted that phrase, ervat devar, to refer explicitly to adultery. It makes divorce only permissible on that ground because it ruptures the one flesh union. But by contrast, Rabbi Hillel was kind of a progressive rock star on the teaching scene in first century Israel about a generation before Jesus. And he and his followers interpreted that phrase, ervat devar, to mean something obnoxious or something distasteful. Hillel literally said, quote, he may divorce her even if she spoils a dish for him. I mean, talk about like, what a peach, right? <laughs> All he had to do was supply 
grounds. Now, both of these schools of thought recognized that there was some protection in case of a divorce for women, but there was also a third position taught by Rabbi Akiva, and his was that a man could divorce a wife for any reason at all, including, quote, even if he finds another more beautiful than she, or if she fails to please him. So you can imagine, by the time Jesus comes around, popular opinion was somewhere between Hillel, who taught that the husband could divorce a wife if she did something obnoxious or something obnoxious about her, and Akiva, who taught that divorce is an option that a man can be free and clear from for any reason at all. And the Pharisees of Jesus' time had every interest in preserving this easy divorce culture, preserving the status quo. So even though this was a very religious culture, Divorce was about as common as it is now in our secular culture, but unlike today, it was not a two-way street. Notice the language, he may divorce her. This is a full-on patriarchal culture. It was much harder for a woman to divorce. And the fact that Jesus even raises the possibility that a woman can divorce in verse 12, and the implication there is that if adultery has happened, by, by even including that, Jesus is, is elevating the moral status of women. One more piece of background. Stick with me for just a second. When Jesus is confronted in Mark 10, Mark lets us know that the Pharisees are trying to trip him up. By this point, Jesus has traveled to the, point, or to the place where Herod lives. And just a little while earlier in the narrative, John the Baptist had gotten beheaded for what reason? because he criticized Herodias, who divorced her first husband, Philip, in order to marry his brother, Herod Antipas. So that is what is the buzz in all of the news. And so they come at him with this popular interpretation. They ask, hey, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're, they're not asking because they're genuinely curious about how Jesus is going to answer this. They're asking because it's a win-win for them. If Jesus sides with Hillel, then that just you know, takes the more uh, progressive position that they have and it preserves the status quo. They win that way because that's what they want. But if Jesus sides with Shammai, then he's going to say something that's unpopular with the crowd and he's going to say something that raises the ire of Herod. So how does Jesus spring the trap? Well, first he goes back to the law. He asks, what does Moses say? And they say Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce, but then Jesus throws this at them. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's Genesis 1. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2. So they are no longer one flesh. Two flesh, but they are one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So you notice what Jesus does here. They come to him asking him about the rule, and Jesus reframes the entire thing by taking them into the narrative world in which marriage has to make sense. What theologians call this, he, he draws them back to the creational intent, meaning he draws them to the creator's vision and design for human flourishing. Now, ethicists point out 
that any debate, any moral question about sex, about sexuality, essentially comes down to the question, what is a human being for? The technical term for this is, is teleology. It's from the word telos, where it means simply the, the end or the purpose for which a thing is made. And, and that is, like, before you can ask a question of whether something is right or whether something is wrong, you first have to answer the question, what is a thing even for? What is a human being for? What is the purpose for which it is made? What is sex for? What is marriage for? And a lot of the yelling back and forth that goes on and the, the venom and the, the name calling and the ire and the culture wars, it comes from, from both sides. They come from this very different assumption about what a human being is, let alone sex and marriage and, and life itself. I mean, if you are an ardent secular materialist, you believe that there is no soul, there is no creator, there is no inherent order or intent to the world beyond what it is that we are able to thoughtfully and hopefully lovingly construct in order to make meaning out of an otherwise meaningless world, then for you, life at best is a glorious, beautiful accident fueled by some sort of cocktail of you know, survival, power, pleasure. And, and if our host culture defines the greatest human good as happiness, I mean, the, the question that we're all trying to, you know, get at when we're scrolling incessantly through our phones or the, the question that we're trying to, you know, podcast our way into is not how to become virtuous, it's how do I become happy? And usually that is understood as the free pursuit of whatever allows me to be my most full and authentic self. If that's your definition of the, of the human person, if that's your definition of happiness, then the greatest evil, the greatest obstacle to being fully human is any form of constraint to that pursuit. But what if that's not what the human project is all about? What if there is a creator whose purpose and end for creation is that male and female serve as image bearers of God, not one dominating over the other, but both together in interdependent mutuality created to image the Trinitarian community of self-giving, other-centered love? And what if love, by its very nature, is a form of self-denial, not self-fulfillment? And what if marriage is intended by God to be, it's, it's designed to set us free over a lifetime from the tyranny of self-centeredness in order to form us through the covenant of a lifelong commitment into people who bear the image of the self-giving and loving God? And then what if True sexuality is the union of two souls and the regular renewal of this lifelong covenant in which, in which uh, the forms of foundations in which children can grow in security and safety and the idea of marriage and sexuality and engendered bodies and all of that and, and, and everything that we find in Genesis through Jesus, if that's what it's all about, then it is really a beautiful and, and breathtaking scope and, and vision of what our lives are about. But it's definitely at odds with our culture. And Jesus was at odds with his culture as well. 
He calls into question both our modern assumptions about marriage as a means of self-fulfillment, but he also rejects the traditional view which views marriage as patriarchal control and leaves little room for women to flourish. To Jesus, it is neither the sovereign self nor either spouse who controls a marriage, but it is God alone. What God has joined together, let no one separate. A radically different view than what had become the norm. Which I guess is probably why the disciples pressed Jesus about it again. As if, like, if all that stuff about Genesis 1 and 2, creational intent, lifelong covenant, if all that stuff is true, then why on earth is Deuteronomy 24 even in here? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Notice Jesus shifts the language from command to permit. He's saying, wait a second, back it up, rewind the tape. Divorce is not a command, it is a concession now, the rabbis taught that there were positive commands that promote God's vision of flourishing and there were negative commands that serve as a signpost for when we act outside of God's vision for flourishing. Those things are there to point us to our way back. The concession on divorce is an attempt to protect women in a culture where women had few options, but it is in no way meant to be a way to promote flourishing. The reason for the concession is this hardness of heart. Turns out that is the only thing a marriage cannot survive. When one spouse's or both's hearts start to harden toward each other. Marriage brings you into closer proximity with any other human uh, than any other relationship. It can survive tragedy. It can survive loss. It can survive illness, dependency. It can even weather the pain of infidelity where there is confession, genuine repentance and confession and reconciliation. But what it cannot survive, even if none of that is present, is when one heart or both becomes sealed off from each other. Psychologist John Gottman, the leading researcher on marriage, describes this as the posture of contempt. And in his research, it is the single most devastating quality in a relationship. Because in that process of being closed off to each other, we become closed off to God. The, the two are interconnected. They're woven into each other. If we become closed off from each other, we become closed off from, from the Spirit, orienting our hearts toward love and forgiveness to that other and yes, sometimes the betrayal, the pain is, is too deep. A heart that is closed off is capable of all kinds of malice, infidelity, abandonment, abuse. And where there is no repentance or no acknowledgement of guilt, then there is no longer a marriage. And divorce then simply becomes a legal recognition that the, this covenant is over. And yet even then, God is committed to working in the one who has been violated to restore them and to, to soften their hearts to a position of forgiveness and love. 
To be hardened toward the other, that is the thing that Jesus is warning about. That's why Jesus, uh, why Mark places this in Jesus' central teaching on discipleship. This is Jesus' biggest complaint about the Pharisees as a whole. They have become hardened toward the reality of the kingdom that is in their midst. And Jesus is saying this can happen in any arena. We can cordon off our souls from others. We can miss what God is doing anywhere we go. So the essence of Jesus' teaching here is to guard your heart above all else. His vision of marriage and divorce, it not only calls into serious question the vision and values of his day, but also of ours. And so I just want to kind of wrap up with a few quick points about the intersection of marriage and discipleship. And the first thing is this. In Jesus' view, marriage is a covenant and not a contract. During premarital counseling, um, oftentimes couples would ask if they could write their own vows. And often I would say, that's fine, but you're going to say the vows that I give you. Like, you're not going to get out of those. And uh, sometimes, like, w- there are a couple of couples that actually pressed back about that. Like, why? And I was like, this because you have absolutely no idea what you're getting yourself into. Like, you, let me tell you how this is going to go down. You're going to write something, and uh, it's going to be cute or, or funny or romantic. Maybe you'll even succeed, right, at, at writing that thing. You're going to describe what it's like to be in love with each other. Nobody cares. <laughs> They're not coming to your wedding because you love each other. They've got Instagram for that. They know you love each other. They're coming because they need to hear you promise to each other, to God, to the whole community that you are going to become the kind of people who are committed to doing what it takes to sustaining your love for each other. Those are two very different things. You're signing up for a covenant. This is a no exceptions clause. It is a vow that you are holding to come what may. If your life is easy, if your life is hard, if her job is better than yours or, or not, it, it, whether you find yourselves a good fit or not, either way, it's a promise that if you break it, it, it shatters you in some level because it penetrates into your soul. So no, you're not getting out of these vows. You still want me to do your wedding? Only one couple said no. But that's how the church has described it for thousands of years. It's, it's this covenant. But the dominant view of marriage in our day in the West is no longer that of a covenant, but of a contract. And, and the difference is that a contract, it's two parties working toward a, 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 a working relationship as long as it is mutually beneficial to both parties. In a covenant, you give up your freedom in faith. True freedom is not the lack of constraint, it is the right kind of constraint. I, I love this, this phrase from Richard Rollheiser. He says, every choice is a thousand renunciations. To choose one thing is to turn one's back on many others. Inside the constraints of a covenant, we become the kind of people who are actually free to love. A contract is a setting for self-fulfillment. It's it's about what I want, what I need. The assumption out there is that there's someone who is just right for me. And when I find that person, if I I look close enough, I'm going to find the thing that, that fills what I need, that meets my needs. 
And the problem with that is that once you find that person, give it a minute. Because they'll change. And you'll change. And you won't always know how that change is going to happen and how it's going to take place. Marriage, like being the enormous thing that it is, means that you are not the same once you enter into it as you were before. In a contract, every change that you don't like, every way that, you know, every argument you have, every way that they don't like measure up to your ego ideal, it gives rise to fantasies of escape because a contract is a vehicle for self-actualization, but a covenant is a setting of self-sacrifice for agape, for putting the interests of the other ahead of your own, putting their needs before your wants. That is where you find the greatest freedom and the greatest joy. That is where the desire to take from the other gets transformed into a desire to give. It's the one and only relational container that has the strength, that has the stability to allow you to learn how to love the stranger that you will find yourself in bed with one day. Within a covenant marriage, it's a lifelong obedience in the same direction. That's why marriage and family, if you go that route, it's the hardest thing you will ever do and also the most rewarding thing you'll ever do because it's designed to bring you out of the prison of yourself. And over time with Jesus to become the kind of person who is capable of forgiveness, who is capable of other-centered love, that is how you will keep your soft heart by tending to the daily practices of attending to the other's needs before your own. For a man and a woman to build a life together, bringing often their own wildly conflicting needs and desires into this tapestry of a whole, it's a gift of grace. And when a couple is able to do that over the long haul of a life together of joy and consolation, it's only because they have found a way to practice daily patience, mutual sacrifice, and disciplined fidelity. And that's why before anything else, Jesus says, marriage is an act of discipleship. And it's also why individual marriages are so fragile. As I close, in answering the question that is posed to him, Jesus actually has no desire to shackle those who've experienced the pain of divorce with debilitating guilt. What he actually wants to do is to describe the flourishing that is possible by grace. And for those who have been through the pain of divorce, it's an enormous loss of a dream. And maybe that, that the loss of that dream has caused your heart to calcify. But the hope of the gospel is that the seeds of resurrection can break through even in the deepest pain. And maybe it feels like you're going through a dark night of the soul if you are in it right now, where it feels like God is a million miles away and you wonder if God is good at all when you pray. It's like you feel like you are talking to the furniture. Well, just know that you have a community that will pray for you. God desires you for himself. And in the story of the Bible You might be surprised to find that God is like a divorcee who laments the hardening of his people's hearts as they chase after other gods 
and yet he does not break covenant with Israel and he will not break covenant with you. So no matter where you are on your discipleship journey, you'll have to grow through the dark night of the soul. It's this place of stripping and pruning and purging and cleansing. It's a place where your will is transformed and you just say, I just want you. And God will meet you there until the soil of your heart, until it is soft again. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.